Herman had everybody taking care of him and was, I would say a puppy dog is maybe a little too warm for Herman because he was more irascible, like Falstaff, you know, sort of the, the wise clown. Joe was colder, but Joe really supported everybody. I mean, in his own less lovable way, Joe was a stand-up guy. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. They were two brothers in Hollywood, but as much rivals as a family act. I talked to Sidney Ladenson Stern, author of The Brothers Mankiewicz. And I talked to Jessica Wall, a blogger who's trying to see that forgotten Hollywood figures are remembered at their grave sites. What I hope you'll remember is to subscribe at your favorite podcast site. And if you feel like setting it in stone, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks. I didn't plan to carry on the funereal theme of the previous episode, but this is something that I heard about because a poster named Rocky Nelson posted about it at Nitrateville, and I decided to find out more. A woman named Jessica Wall, she has the Silences Platinum blog, held a GoFundMe fundraiser for grave markers for some old Hollywood figures who never got headstones. The ones she chose are all at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery which is the final resting place of many film figures from Cecil B. DeMille to Julie Garland. After a period of mismanagement, new owners have revitalized it as a place embracing its Hollywood heritage, including embracing Ms. Wall's efforts to remember the forgotten buried there. I spoke with Jessica Wall in L.A. right after her current fundraiser hit its goal. Well, congrats on the crowdfunding thing getting funded before we even talked about it. Thank you very much. It's, I mean, we're still accepting donations considering how great Hollywood Forever is, but considering we hit that mark has been, that's awesome. Well, let's talk about uh, what led to all this. I mean, I think a lot of people know something of the story of Hollywood Forever Park over the last few years, but maybe give me like a kind of a quick potted history of, uh, of this cemetery. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself like a Hollywood Forever expert, but um, from what I know, it's a wonderful cemetery that really cares about, I mean, keeping up the history of the people that are, in fact, interred there. Um, it's not like other cemeteries where they kind of want to shy away from advertising what names they have buried there. This one, it celebrates that fact. And what makes it even cooler for someone who loves old movies like me, myself is that many of early film pioneers are buried there. Um, 
I mean, a lot of the people, if not most of the people in our campaign were early film pioneers and they just happened to be in unmarked graves, but there is so much history there. Um, it's such a cool cemetery in that way. And in recent years, the new management, which took over after some years of mismanagement and sort of general neglect, uh, I mean, they've really done a lot of activities to bring people to the cemetery. They have concerts there and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I myself have seen um, a live show there. I've gone to um, the Synespia movies at night that they show there. Uh, They do a Day of the Dead. I mean, it's not just a, quote, cemetery where you go and have to be very um, quiet and serene. Even though there is that, it's also a place that you can go for cultural reasons and it's very well respected still so people were buried there but they're they don't have headstones so we they just know that they're in plot such and such or how what's the situation yeah um i know people get confused by that because they think well they're unmarked so how do you know that they're there and even though the plot itself on the grounds doesn't have a marker the cemetery has very detailed records about who is in what plot and my favorite one of my favorite resources is the find a grave website and the people that started find a grave are incredible because a lot of them will put down pictures of where the plots are the locations so they're easier to find even if they're unmarked um but when i moved out here i started visiting cemeteries and not just hollywood forever where I kept noticing how many more and more unmarked graves there were. And that just struck me because I'm like, I know these names and there are other people that know these names. And it's just so sad that they don't have a proper marker. It's just an empty space on the ground. So you got the idea of providing markers. And I guess you've done this before. You've, You've put markers for other people. Yes. And so tell me how that all came about. Well, I had written on my blog, um, just kind of highlighting some names that I knew were unmarked that I, I had visited and just kind of put on there that, you know, one day I hope that this can be resolved. And it, I don't think it even entered my brain that I could do that. Um, and then I received an email from a gentleman saying that he wanted to mark silent film actress Catherine Grant and that he knew the name of her great niece. And it just kind of hit me then that I was like, oh, my God, that we can actually do this. I could start a GoFundMe page. We can look into getting this purchased. I need to talk to the cemetery, like all this stuff. I mean, now it's become an easy process for me. I know everything I need to do. But, I mean, Catherine Grant was the first one where I really saw how many people would come together, donate, and want to celebrate someone that is pretty much, she's not really well remembered now, but we did enough to purchase her a headstone and the, it it kind of went from there. I'm like, okay, I need to get a list together of all these people that I know are unmarked and I need to work at trying to contact next of kin and see what I need to do. But the way it's kind of grown since then is I'll just have somebody suggest someone to me or they found somebody's next of kin and that has kind of 
started the process. I mean, after Catherine, Joe Keaton, I think Buster Keaton's dad might have been the next one, if I can remember correctly. My brain's leaving my head. But um, he was one that we kind of did uh, a campaign right around the Buster Keaton convention that happens in L.A. And that one, we were able to get him a bronze headstone because we received so many donations. In less than 24 hours, we reached our 2,200 mark, something like that. And um, since then, I've done one for silent film actress Corliss Palmer, which um, my friend Jennifer Redman wrote a book about her. So it kind of coincided with that. And then the last one was um, for Edmund Lowe. Oh, and okay. that was, so that one was really cool. I mean, it's, it's insane looking back at it and to think now this is the biggest one with eight names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about it, but uh so you need you need a family member, somebody to, you know, be who gives you permission to do this? Yes. Uh cemeteries require that you have next of kin authorization, considering the fact that I'm not related to any of these people. Um and that's where my librarian skills really come in handy um, because it's a lot of research, especially for people um, like in this case, I mean, some of these people died in the twenties, the thirties. And so you're really having to dig. Um, and I was very lucky to have my partner in the venture. Her name's Samantha Ellis. Um, she writes the musings of a classic film addict. It's her blog. And it's without, her help with researching, I mean, this has taken almost a year to research, and this is eight people, too. So without her help, I mean, I don't know where this campaign would be. <laughs> well, let's talk about the uh, the ones that you're doing this time. Um, names that were, at best, only kind of dimly familiar to me. Uh, first one, at least, I knew, Spottiswood can just because that's such a great name. Um, but he's yes. in, <laughs> he's in Birth of a Nation. I realize I just saw him in uh, The Eagle. Uh, so a yes. silent silent film actor. Um, the next one is Frank Alexander. Yes, and, and who's he? Well, Frank Alexander was kind of one of the classic uh, fat guy actors, fat guy funny men. Okay. Um, and so him, and kind of the same with Andrew Arbuckle. They were just kind of the and most magazines at the time kind of said oh they're the they're just they're fat and funny that's basically what they were known for i mean arbuckle had um his brother macklin was also another quote fat funny guy so i think they just kind of saw what happened with um roscoe arbuckle and like all the studios were like well we can get our own fat funny guys and they just had a bunch of them well and andrew is actually roscoe's cousin i see so well that is actually not true. Oh, okay. How dare you, Wikipedia yeah. or whoever just told me? I that. know. <laughs> I know. I've seen it when I first saw that too. I was like, oh, okay. But then upon looking into it, I was like, no, they're not. Okay. But I mean, you would think it's it's not the most common sounding name, but no, they're not. They're not related. At least not that closely. And he actually was named Arbuckle. It wasn't just uh, taking advantage of a name that meant fat guy comedy. No, they were, they were born Arbuckle. Okay. All right. Next up is Marion Fairfax. And who's she? She was uh, also 
she did some acting, I believe, but she was most known for being a, um, I forget how you pronounce it, is it scenarist? But she wrote screenplays. She wrote, she was a female screenwriter. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of some of her big works. Let's the way see. we did this is like Samantha researched four heavily, and then I researched four. <laughs> so, and Marion okay. was one of hers, but I know she did. Um, She's in the Lost World. I mean, there's one that people probably have actually seen. So there we go. Yeah. Or, or she wrote no, yeah, she wrote and, the Lost World. Sorry. Yeah. And she was married to Tully Marshall, and he's actually marked, but then she's just not for some reason. Huh. Next up, we have King David Gray. Now, there's a name that you probably would have stuck with me if I'd ever run across it. So, who is King David Gray? I'm gonna make sure I get it right. So, he was a it was a camera guy, okay. and he um, what made him like I think one of his biggest ones was probably uh, the Squaw Man. So, he was involved in the making or the filming of that. Okay. Um, but he kind of came into our purview because we read about. He was murdered. I don't. I don't think it was ever solved. Huh. Um, some weird unsolved murder, and of course, the stories were spinning it to like, oh, he was involved in this, and was he actually gay? Did he have this, or did he have, like the stories were spinning all these stories about what could have happened, um, and so that kind of piqued our interest um, in a kind of macabre way, I guess. Sure. But I mean, he was involved in one of the biggest, I mean, feature length films, so course had to include him for that next up robert mckim now there's a name that i kind of know although i'm not sure i could identify him yeah he's been in a couple of um kind of alongside bigger names like fairbanks he was in um uh zorro the mark of zorro okay he was also in um a cheney movie which was all the valiant brother all the all the all brothers, the brothers were, valiant. were valiant right and I see he's in, he's in the bat as well. So he's actually going to be one of the easier ones because he's actually in the chapel. It's a a hallway that has um, cremation ashes, and he's actually in the same area where Ford Sterling is. Oh, okay. And then Elmo Lincoln is right above him, so he's actually an easy marker. But um, we can't just specifically get his ashes out. He's just kind of in the community area. Okay. Uh, then there's Sydney Smith. Yeah, Sydney Smith was new to me when I first came across it. I didn't know really who he was until, of course, after reading his name, I started seeing it like all the time in um, like photo play magazines. He was a co- um, a comedic actor. Okay. And he went by uh, Sid, so he was like Sid Smith, and he did a bunch of um, shorts in the early twenties and teens. So he was a, um, I think he was pretty like a tiny little actor, almost like. Um, like a Harry Langdon almost. He died as a result of drinking bad liquor at a party. And so that was another one that interested at least me because I'm like, oh, tainted like bathtub gin. I thought that was very, very 1920. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the last one, good name for a silent uh, actress, Delphine Walsh. And I just read something about her in relation to how she died. Also very much of the time period that she lived in. Yeah. Delphine is the most interesting. Um, Delphine was actually a dancer and she did die as a result of a botched abortion, or as they called in the papers then an illegal operation. And 
what connected her to Hollywood besides her being a dancer was that she was close friends with Mildred Harris and um, Natalie Joyce. But I mean, and they were close friends, especially with Mildred Harris. She lived with Mildred for a while. Um, Mildred is actually one of the bridesmaids in Delphine's sister's wedding. But when she went on the stand during the trial for the physicians that performed the operation, Mildred said, I didn't really know her that well. Um, You know, we weren't even that close. I just knew her from dancing. And I mean, the prosecutor was like, no, we have evidence that you lived together. Like you weren't, this isn't just a casual acquaintance. And so it was really sad to me that, I mean, I can understand why, because it was such a taboo and a legal thing to be connected to, but it's, it's so sad that her friends kind of deserted her. And she, and it's, it's interesting too, that she's buried in an unmarked grave at Hollywood forever where Mildred Harris is also interred. <laughs> it's a very sad story, but it's one that I think needed to be told. And, um, we actually have, um, a woman who works for Planned Parenthood that donated specifically to pay for Delphine's headstone, which was an amazing thing to see. So you pick these eight stars, but you have many others that uh, like the next round you might do more. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) The list keeps growing. Oh my God. Like even, even when we were researching these eight, five more came to our attention at Hollywood forever alone. But we're like, you know what? We need to let's get these done first because we've been working on them for like half a year. Um, But I mean, I was just adding to my list yesterday. And I mean, I'm pulling it up right now to see what my list number is at. It is at 85. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay. 85. And those are, I mean, say for like maybe four that are four or five that aren't in California, those are mostly in California. But not necessarily at Hollywood Forever. No. Um, Hollywood Forever um, with these eight, then I think there were like five more. Um, but no, these are spread out through all, I mean, most of them are in LA. So it's like Holy Cross, Forest Lawn, um, Inglewood. They're all over LA County. And do you think the others will be sympathetic to what you're doing for them? Yes. Um, <laughs> I we <will> hope. Say, <laughs> Hollywood, yeah. Hollywood Forever has by far been the most generous. And I, I attribute that to Tyler. He's just an amazing person. And he has been super helpful with this. The other cemeteries I've worked with in the past, um, Inglewood, Woodlawn, um, Oh, San, uh, San Fernando Mission Hills. They, they're helpful. Um, once I actually get in and talk to someone and they realize that I'm not just some crazed fan, right? Um, that I actually know what I'm doing. I have the proper paperwork. I have the authorization. Once they realize that, then it's easier, but they're definitely more strict with something. Is there anybody in particular on the list of 85 that you're sort of excited to finally get to? Oh man. Um, I have a soft spot for some of the Mac Senate bathing beauties, like Alberta Vaughn, um, Alice Mason. There's, 
there's a few names like that that I really want to get marked. Um, Alice Lake is another big one. I mean, I look at this list. I'm like, oh, yeah, that person, that person, that person. <laughs> um, I just I love the Max Senate bathing beauties. And so those would be the big ones, I think, for me, at least. But I mean, in any one of them, I would be thrilled. You can still contribute to the current fundraiser or watch Nitrateville for word about the next one. Links for the current one and for Jessica Wall's blog will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. You like this podcast. I mean, I assume so. Why else have you listened this far? And you have friends who like old movies, too. You see what I'm getting at. Put on this podcast in the car so they hear it. Recommend it when they're talking about stuff they listen to. In short, spread the word and help us grow our audience. The bigger the audience is, the more it helps us attract well-known guests when we can tell them how many people listen. So, if you like Nitrateville Radio, help other people like Nitrateville Radio, too. Thanks. A fellow remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. Suppose your brother wrote that, and you wrote this. The general atmosphere is very Macbethish. What has or is about to happen? What is he talking about? Macbeth. We know you. We've seen you like this before. Is it over or is it just beginning? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. When it comes to all-time great brother acts, the Marxes, the Barrymores, right up there are Herman Mankiewicz, writer of Citizen Kane and a couple of other things, and Joseph Mankiewicz, 12 years his junior, writer and director of All About Eve, Cleopatra, and a few other things. They had similarities, quick wit, and the ability to swim in the shark-infested waters of Hollywood, and they also had differences, not least in how they handled success. Sidney Ladenson Stern is a reporter and biographer who tells Herman and Joe's parallel stories together for the first time in her book The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics from the University of Mississippi Press. I spoke with her in New York and started by asking why she wanted to write about both brothers. Well, I started off thinking about writing about Herman because I thought he was the quintessential Hollywood screenwriter story, you know, a New York reporter critic, etc., who went out to Hollywood to make a little money and stayed and hated himself and drank himself to death. And that wasn't really true. 
but in the because he I think he would have drunk himself to death in New York anyway. But um, in doing the the preliminary research, I then read Joe's biography, and I thought, hmm, there's really a whole that's bigger than the sum of these two parts, I think. And I thought it would be interesting. So that's how I, I actually got to Joe through Herman rather than the other way. Well, let's talk about uh, – let's begin with, with their parents. Um, immigrants – but came to America, you know, with, with at least a certain amount of learning and, and other things to them. They didn't grow up completely, uh, you know, in a tailor shop on the, on the Lower East Side or anything like that. Well, it's kind of interesting because we know a lot more about the father. We know he had been to the University of Berlin and that he was educated. I do not believe he had a degree, but he hadn't finished, but he was very cultured and educated. The mother is more mysterious, and they were immigrated separately and just met in New York. And in one of the censuses that I saw, it said that she couldn't read, but I don't really believe that. I think that they're just sort of erroneous because I think it meant that she couldn't read English. Right. Because her daughter described her as arguing with New York Times editorials, et cetera. (laughs) I mean, her, her English was never that good, but I think she was intelligent. But it's just too much of a stretch to me to imagine him, Pop marrying somebody who was that um, illiterate. Also, she was from Kurland, which was this German-speaking part of, I think it's Latvia now. And um, from what research I did on Kurland, they were, people tended to be educated. Yeah. So she was not, she didn't have his kind of background, but their home life was very cultured and intellectual the 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 brothers right through pop etc and he was a school teacher and yes he started out well joe would tell these i mean joe and they were all storytellers so it's it's sort of hard to know what the truth was but at times joe said he came over wanting to be a poet that he came over wanting to be a teacher that he came over wanting to be a journalist so i don't exactly know what his plans were but he was in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, as the head of a German-language newspaper when he started substitute or, or tutoring and loved it and ended up going with, uh, to work at a private school there and uh, loved teaching and found his vocation and thought his son should both do it too. Well, and then it's funny that Wilkes-Barre turns up as uh, as yes, a running gag with, with both <laughs> right. of them, sort of Cleveland right. or Burbank uh, go-to for jokes. So. Yes, exactly. And in fact, in one of a reunion in France, the John Wayne character is from Wilkesbury, which Joe is the producer, but I knew he must have contributed that. Why else would it be there? So it, it is. It's like a little pop-up gag. Now Herman was quite a bit older. Uh, Joe was kind of the surprise baby. And how far apart were they? Eleven and a half years. Okay, so he's well on his way into his career when you know when Joe is even being taken notice of by the adults, yes. really. Right, right. Joe in his childhood, I, I, I guess you saw the letter in there that I put in. Tr- always trying to impress Herman, adored Herman, worshipped Herman, and um, so Herman brought Joe out and sort of thrust him upon Paramount, which was. One of his major contributions to Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Joe. Well, and it's interesting. I'm, um, 
I interviewed someone who wrote a book about Ben Heck not too long ago, and the story is almost identical. Herman was, you know, in newspapers. He, mm-hmm. you know, lived that wild, wonderful newspaper life that people like me who are on the fringes of it now when it's so sad, you know, you, yeah. you sit there with a tear running down your eye reading about the good times they had. Uh, most of them alcohol fueled, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but like starting, starting little magazines and he, he goes to, goes to Europe right after world war one, just as heck did. And eventually becomes part of that whole smart set of, uh, Playwrights and newspaper people. He's a contributor to FPA's column, which was a big deal that you have to know that period to know what that was and why that was a big deal. Right, uh, right. You know, and, and ends up uh, sort of tagging along a bit with George S. Kaufman, who was one of the few who wasn't actually devoting more time to drinking than his work. I'm incredibly productive right. at that time. Yes. I mean, I think George, he... he George S. Kaufman was really his mentor and his idol, but I think the respect went both ways because Kaufman hired him and saw him up close and despite his dissolute ways, collaborated with him and really adored him. I mean it was a it although Kaufman was the senior and the superior, it was a mutual admiration society. And that Algonquin group that Kaufman and Dorothy Parker and so forth were part of Ben Hecht really disdained and disparaged. So um, Herman also had newspaper friends who were not part of that. You know, it's sort of two sets of his friends. Yeah, it sounds like certain of them were wise to, you know, keep that in its sort of drinking camaraderie at arm's length if they wanted to actually get mm-hmm. work done. Edna Ferber was the one who did not show up very often because she was always working. But Kaufman was just incredibly prolific and productive. He could go out and have lunch and play poker all the time and yet turn out all these plays and, new, and newspaper criticism and everything. So uh, Herman goes to Hollywood in the in the late silent era. Um, and actually title writing proves to be a great profession for somebody who's sort of good at uh, snappy little one-liners and stuff like that. So he's quite successful as a title writer, a profession that was about to disappear. Right. And they were very highly paid because apparently that could make, I mean, you could, you could film something and it could be a tragedy or a comedy depending on the <laughs> titles. So um, it was a, much more of an art than we can imagine, I guess. I mean, some of his were very funny, very yeah. clever. Now, I've seen some of the early films that he wrote in that period, and I feel like there's a little less than meets the eye. Uh, I think of things like, uh, I think it's Man of the World with William Powell mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're smart, but... They're not classics. They don't quite work. They seem to kind of have the attitude right, but I'm not convinced that as stories they're... Thin. They're thin. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think William Powell puts them across... He does a really nice job of acting these gigolos with hearts of gold. There's ladies' man and there's man of the world, and they're both sort of similar and they're touching, but I agree there's not much to them. He was also working... um, a couple of times, I mean, he showed more ambition in, in projects that didn't come to fruition. Um, this idea of a story of a man's life sort of told backwards with different points of view that suggest kind of a different person. 
um, which doesn't quite ultimately make it into Citizen Kane because I don't know that people have wildly contradictory views of him, but it's somewhat a prismatic view of somebody, different mm-hmm. ways of looking at him. And he's thinking about that by the early 30s. Uh, there's the Dillinger script that I remember Pauline Kael mentioning that he worked on at one point that took that approach. Um, and he's also got this thing called the Mad Dog of Europe, which, you know, the what was the phrase that the HUAC used later, prematurely anti-fascist. Herman was was about as prematurely anti-fascist as anybody in Hollywood with that. Yes, he was very political. And a lot of people who knew him, like even including Joe, would say he should have been a political pundit. I mean, Frank Mankiewicz's career, his son, is sort of the career a lot of people imagine Herman should have had. Um, And... Yet I would argue that Herman loved make-believe and he loved telling stories and he was writing for theater even in when he was at Columbia. So I don't think one should dismiss it, but I think that Mad Dog of Europe was probably the most idealistic project he ever had in life. And that was because he was very political, he was very historically minded, and he recognized the threat that Hitler presented even in those early early 1930 years. So when he wrote this screenplay that he was never able to get produced because there was so much resistance to angering the Germans and and, um, losing the German market, he identified all the landmarks in Hitler's rise to power contemporaneously in 1933. And they're still uh, regarded as the important points in, in the rise. And this was just you know, early before a lot of other events happened. The other thing that, uh, you know, in terms of politics that he was involved with then was unionization in Hollywood, yes. which was <laughs> happening then in which he took a, a really perverse set of positions on, it seemed to me. Yes, it's it's interesting because, first of all, he was very contrarian to begin with. I mean, I think he he liked to argue and be perverse just for the sake of arguing and being perverse. But he also felt that it was dangerous to try to unionize screenwriters because they were so highly paid, not only compared to other writers, but compared to what they did, that they would invite destruction in some way. So he opposed it. He said to his son, Don, and I suppose to Frank, too, you can't, it's like comic book caption writing. You can't have a literary genre of comic book caption writing. Well, actually, now one would say <laughs> yeah, you, you could. Can. Right, right. But um, so he backed the um, studio backed, uh, what was uh, screenwrite, screen playwrights union, whereas Joe was involved in the one that ultimately prevailed, the Screenwriters Guild. Well, and it seems like that's so wound up with his own attitude toward his work at that point that he was, you know, selling out. He found it easy to make money, although he never managed to not find it also easy to spend more than he was making mm-hmm. at it <laughs> or lose it in poker yes, games always, or whatever. Uh, but he found it easy to make money. He kind of had contempt for it for that reason. Um, he felt he, he wasn't doing his real work and someday he was going to get ahead and go do it or not. Well, I would also say he had it both ways because he was very in with the with the powers that be. So he could make fun of other people while being protected himself. 
And I would also mention that it wasn't just spending. He was gambling. That's how, why he was always out of money. Right. And not um, uh, materialistic, but he would gamble away huge sums. It was just disastrous. Yeah. All right. So Joe is in Hollywood at the same time. He comes, I guess, in the early 30s, somewhere around there. 1929. Okay. Herman brought him in early 29. So he wasn't even quite um, 20. You know, he has some interesting credits. You know, Million Dollar Legs is, I suppose, the one that film buffs know now. Uh, but really kind of stumbling along in that 30s period as a writer, and then eventually he was kind of forced in the position of being a producer. And it's it's this odd thing that I suspect a lot of younger film fans don't know about, which was, I mean, now how you become a director is you sell a screenplay, and then you mm-hmm. get to direct it. And back then there was an absolute wall between that. You, you know, writers right. didn't direct ever. And, you know, finally a few people like Garson Kane and Preston Sturges managed to break that down. But Joe was in that period where he's selling scripts and he wants to direct. And they just, I think it was, it was a Daryl Zanuck who just flat out tells him, no, go be a producer. Well, it wasn't even that he sought the prestige of directing. It's that he was primarily a writer and he really envisioned his screenplays as movies and wanted them to be realized on the screen as he envisioned them. So even though sometimes he then later directed what he hadn't written, his, his real love was writing. So yes, I mean, he was desolate that he had to produce because then he wasn't able to be creative in the writing either. And when he was creative, he couldn't get credit for it, which his assertions to the contrary, he cared about. He did care about credit. Because the producers weren't allowed to take writing credit. Well, evidently, producers were always helping themselves to writer's credit. So at some point, um, a rule was imposed that unless you wrote the whole script, you couldn't have credit. Yeah. Well, and then he he winds up playing the part of the bad guy producer to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, which is irony of ironies there. Because, you know, obviously someone who would go on to be a notable creative force gets portrayed in that story as as just you know the the not very bright thug who beat up on the writer right and at that point he had good experience as a screenwriter he was a better screenwriter than Fitzgerald and he respected Fitzgerald tremendously but yes that was an irony that went on for years and years and that was promulgated over and over in everything about Fitzgerald that um, Joe can't you know, producers ever be wrong, and I'm a good writer, honestly. You know, phrases like that in Fitzgerald's letter that to Joe that got printed over and over. So he was cast as this thuggish producer for about 20 years. Right. I remember the first time I read it, I don't think it identified him. It just was, Joe, can't I? Can't producers ever uh-huh. be wrong? And you're thinking, you know, it's, it's some other Joe, Joe Pasternak or somebody. Little do we know that it's Academy Award winner Joseph Mankiewicz. Well, he called him Monkey Bitch. You know, <laughs> his back. Another film that he produced that I thought I thought was really interesting um, is Fury, Fritz Lang's first American film, and you know, very strong stuff for coming out of MGM in particular in that time. An anti-lynching film, uh, admittedly with a white character rather than a black one, which would have been historically more accurate. But you know, giving a clear picture of you know, sort of a mob mentality taking over an American small town, which in its own way is is kind of the comment that Herman was trying to make about Hitler and, and mm-hmm. things in Germany. 
Yes. Well, that was his first. He was, when he first became a producer, he had to produce this Three Godfathers, and it was supposed to be a B movie. And he did not want. If he had to be a producer, he did not want to produce B movie. So he made it so expensive that um, he was able to say, "See, I can't really do B movies." <laughs> so the Fury was his first movie that he produced and he came to Louis B. Mayer with it and Mayer, it was absolutely not typical Metro Gold of Mayer, did not want to do it, but he said, okay, you know, if I don't give you this chance, then you're always going to feel that, you know, you didn't have your chance and it could have been great. So he did it and um, it was actually financially successful, but Mayer was so displeased about that that he didn't tell Joe. Yes. So Joe didn't know for several years that it actually did make money. And he added touches to that, too. And and Spencer Tracy was a good friend of Joe's. And it's interesting that they managed to be successful with Fritz Lang, which a lot of people in that period uh, you know, weren't. I mean, Walter Wanger made a movie with him and then immediately parodied him in uh, Stand In. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. people had their reactions to to Fritz Lang pretty strongly. And I guess at one point they, they, you mentioned in passing that, that the, tru- the crew attempted to kill him. They were going to drop a yes. lamp on him. He was a monster. He was a monster and evidently wouldn't eat all day except for one pill brought to him on a silver tray by his secretary. And at some point, some point, Spencer, I guess the crew said to Spencer Tracy, you know, we, we need lunch, we need a break. And so Tracy went to him and said, Mr. Lang, the crew, we've been working all morning, can we have a break? And he said, you'll break when I say you can. So Spencer Tracy wiped his makeup off his face and said, lunchtime, and everyone went for a break. But the crew was so angry, apparently, at some point, yes, they were going to drop a lamp on Lang's head in a way that no one would be able to be pinpointed as the culprit. (laughs) And Joe found out about it and and, um, got him to not do that. So then they just sabotaged things as they could go. Oh, and then the other thing is that Lang had a scene in there where I think angels were following around Spencer Tracy and then hiding behind trees. (laughs) And... um, they wanted that cut, and he and Lang said, "No, I won't cut a thing." So Joe was told, "Cut it anyway." And so Lang was furious and wouldn't shake his hand when he saw him afterwards. He's yeah. a difficult guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So by the late '30s, I mean, I guess Joe wasn't very happy with his career, but you'd have to say he was successful in an objective sense. Herman, on the other hand, was kind of on the decline, and you know, you saw. Something that I think is is uh, key to their relationship uh, for the remaining years, which you know, you, as you put it at one point, Herman expected everyone to rescue him, especially his family. He would create mm-hmm. these sort of destructive, uh, you know, situations for himself and and look to see who bailed him out. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, especially when you have you're writing about dead subjects, so you know how their life came out. And when I would look back and go, again, you're doing this again. I mean, wh- why do you have to keep being so self-destructive? Because he would try to change. He went through analysis at one point, and um, it just didn't work. He kept doing these destructive things. So, why? I, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I couldn't really tell you, but. It was tragic to watch him go downhill as as Joe was rising and um, make everyone around him suffer. And he was very beloved, but he was it was just tragic. 
Yeah, I mean, he seems to have been a sort of forlorn puppy that everybody adopted at some point and found charming, but uh, was a, was a lot of trouble. The interesting thing with Joe is that it works in a different way with him. He he liked. He seemed to like to create chaos around himself so that he could be the master of the situation, particularly his, his wife, uh, Rosa, uh, Rosa Stradner, uh, who failed at becoming a star and was very uh, neurotic and high-strung. And at the same time, he tended to sleep with his female stars. That would seem to be part of the directorial process. Not that he was the only one who did that. I mean, William Wyler was another. But, uh, you know, there's there's a, a line. I'll have to bleep myself here. Uh, <laughs> but he says at some point, you know, Cuker flattered him. I effed yeah. him. Uh, right. And uh, crude but, but accurate way of putting... Uh, you know, the fact that, I mean, some of these stars seem to want to fall in love with their directors for the course of the picture and uh, and and afterwards, to some extent. I mean, Joan Crawford seems to have been smitten with him for many years after and, and things like that. So I don't think of Joe as a, as a chaos creator. I think of Joe actually pretty disciplined and orderly, but in love with love. He was falling in love always and... And as he got more powerful, yes, he would have these affairs. Even when he was a producer, he had the affair with Joan Crawford when he was her producer for a while. And Judy Garland, he was the producer. It was when he became a director at 20th Century Fox that then he would also have affairs with the women in his movies. And with Rosa, I don't know why he stayed with her. I think he was... In spite of all their faults, they were two very bourgeois men in their own way and, and felt they had to support their families. And while Herman had everybody taking care of him and was, I would say a puppy dog is maybe a little too warm for Herman because he was more <laughs> irascible, like Falstaff, you know, sort uh-huh. of the, the wise clown or something. Joe was colder, but Joe really supported everybody. I mean, in his own less lovable way, Joe was a stand-up guy and took care of people. And I think he was a terrible husband to Rosa. And I think part of why she suffered so much was that Joe was in love with psychiatry and just fascinated by psychoanalysis and psychiatrists. And Rosa was always being treated by the kind of Freudian psychiatrist that Joe believed in, and I don't think they helped her. So if he had probably he divorced her she would have been better off but i think it was helpful to be married and then he could have all these affairs and then end them well yeah i mean before he was married to rosa he had had an an earlier wife and they had a child and Mm -hmm. it sounds like there was kind of a traumatic business about working out the custody on you know his his first child and you know that that sort of put him in the feeling like he he had abandoned his child. So, yeah, that was really interesting letters, uh, correspondence about that. He, it was kind of a starter marriage. They were young by the time they had Eric, their child. He was off with Joan Crawford, or you know, he had moved on. He was, he had, he was uninterested in his wife, and they were divorced three years to the day from their marriage. So that didn't last very long. And at that point, I don't know whether they called it joint custody, but he did see Eric and have him visit in the summer. A few years later, when he had two sons with Rosa, 
he had uh, he had also agreed to a very generous um, child support and alimony um, arrangement of a thousand dollars a month, and that's a lot in the late thirties, early forties. So he wanted um, to rearrange the finances, and at that point, his former wife said, "Well, I'd like to." adopt Eric. She was remarried by then to a lovely Eugene Raynal. He was a publisher and he was a really good stepfather for Eric. And so they went back and forth with psychiatrists and everything. And and Joe did not want his son to feel he had abandoned him. But he did point out, you never said that Eric had any issues until money was raised. So that was kind of ticklish. So that son did take on the name of Raynal, but in later life, they became close. All right, so we get to around 1940, 41, and actually Herman, after having headed downward for most of the the 30s, has his career high point in a couple of ways. I mean, one, obviously, is Citizen Kane, that he's sort of recruited as the old pro to help this, you know, new kid come out. After talking about some other projects, they wind up back at the idea of telling a great man's life, flaws and all, backwards and from the perspective of the people who knew him. But he also writes Pride of the Yankees around the same time, which is no slouch either. But he wins an Oscar. He, you know, has a couple of impressive credits. And Joe makes the comment, uh, you know, he's got the uh, Oscar and I'm a producer at Metro. I don't think I'll ever win an Oscar. Yes, right. I know it was painful because he was the hard worker. And Herman just fell into these things, although when he worked, he did work hard, but yes. Yeah, and the irony is that, you know, Joe wasn't exactly having a bad time either. I mean, as as you say, I mean, two of the comedies he produced at MGM, I mean, really are, you know, as good as anything that they did like yeah. that. Uh, Philadelphia Story and then Woman of the Year, which starts the whole Tracy Hepburn cycle as well. Right, so. right. Right, but when that happened, when Herman actually got the Oscar, which was, I guess, February of uh, 1942, he was still a producer. So he was feeling so frustrated creatively, et cetera. And Herman and his wife had no idea Joe was so unhappy because, yes, he did look much more successful. just wasn't what he wanted to be doing. Yeah, I mean, they both seemed to sort of thrive on this self-image of, it's terrible that I'm making so much money at doing the thing that I don't I don't like to do. Yes, their salaries are astonishing for the depression. I mean, they're so high anyway, but when you think about everyone in bread lines, it's shocking. Yeah. How much people in Hollywood made in those years. And actually Joe's good period is right around the corner. He finally forces his way into directing um, I was thinking Dragonwick, for example, is a really interesting film that you, definitely shows a different, um, you know, just a kind of different sensibility coming into Hollywood, partly benefiting from the fo- fact that Fox became more ambitious at that time. I think, you know, nobody both fed that and benefited from it as much as Joe Mankiewicz in that era. Um, but he, you know, it's it's kind of a romantic pot boiler, but it has this one really interesting, you know, sort of satanic atheist character played by Vincent Price. <laughs> and there's just, there's just like, it's fun to watch because there's more meat to it than the story deserves, p- pretty much purely because Mankiewicz clearly sympathized with the Price character and let Price, ru- you know, wrote him good dialogue and let him run with it. And- yes, his, their dialogue is always wonderful. Well, not every word, but yes, that, that's a strength. And I would also add that he 
while he had wanted to direct, he really didn't get the chance till he got pushed out of Metro because of his affair with Judy Garland. So he landed at the place where he did get the opportunity to write and direct. And um, although the first film he worked on was Keys of the Kingdom, which he produced and wrote. And it was Dragonwick was his first time directing. Yeah. So Steadley, I think, you know, he makes he makes interesting films all through that period. I mean, Ghost and Mrs. Muir, certainly, you mm-hmm. know, a romance again with just more to it. And it's more interesting to watch. Um, I have an elaborate theory that the ending of 2001 is inspired by the ending of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which I won't uh, trouble you with. <laughs> with well, that's the... interesting because with The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, they were not satisfied with the ending, but they could not figure out you know, how to reconcile this dead person, living person romance. So they weren't happy with the ending, but it was the best thing they could come up with. I think so it, now I'll have to watch 2001 again and see. <laughs> I think it achieves a little, you know, even as it is sort of a romantic mush ending, it achieves right. a sense of transcendence that, you know, uh-huh. maybe maybe stuck with a whatever he was, 14-year-old kid or whatever that Stanley Kubrick was at the time. Uh, you know, I think I think it's at a time when you tended to see heaven as a place to tap dance in musicals or something uh-huh. like that. You know, there's there's something a little more trans, transcendent going on in Ghosts of Mrs. Muir. Uh, I think Letter to Three Wives, again, it's just a movie that shows really good writing in an interesting premise, uh, you know, with a, with a sardonic take on marriage um, Mm -hmm. that's carried out with, I mean, it'd be be easy to write a satire, but it's carried out with well-rounded characters who give us different perspectives on marriage. Um, Maybe a film that's not as intriguing now as it was at the time when that was newer, but still, I mean, you know, you, you had to regard him as a, as an important figure in Hollywood at that moment. Well, that was his first big film. I mean, he felt, I, he said, I felt I came upon the promised land. And if you saw the material that he worked with, he, Vera Kaspari wrote um, a treatment and she did raise it up from it. It was a cosmopolitan story and then a novel and it was very mundane and she made the characters more individual. Joe brought in a lot more issues and yes, and, and individualized the characters and the marriages and there are a lot of his themes in their class, et cetera. And uh, it's, yeah, I love that movie. It's yeah, I mean, delightful. And he also had a mouthpiece. I mean, that's when Kirk Douglas starts pontificating about all kinds of things. And that Joe, from then on, always had someone giving his opinions, if he could, in the movies. Who, interestingly, is not particularly the hero in those movies. I mean, Addison DeWitt, he's kind right. of the villain right. in it. Right. Uh, but, you know, he he seems to recognize that that sort of, you know, brittle, cynical smartness that the Mankiewicz brothers represented isn't always a good thing. It can be very destructive socially. Well, I don't think, I was thinking about this recently, they're, they're not touchy-feely, warm, romantic movies. Neither of them made those, but there is a warmth to their characters, even so. Um, even in, like in All About Eve, it's, to me, I've always loved the importance of being earnest, but there's no real character. They're just right. people saying wonderful lines. But in All About Eve, you do care about the characters, even if they're very mannered. 
for a movie. No, I think when you really sympathize with them is when they overstep. They're so sold on themselves, and they say these pompous things, you know, these self-regarding things, and that's when you see, you know, the scared little boy or the scared little girl mm-hmm. within them. You know, mm-hmm. Mar- Margot is a, you know, is a terror as Betty Davis tended to play, but she's also desperately afraid of turning 40. Bill's mm-hmm. a genius this week. He may not be a genius next week. Who knows? <laughs> so, right. you know, right. you, you definitely, you know, you sympathize with them kind of when they, when they become the monsters that those kind of people are often seen as, and the, the Mankiewiczes often were, I suppose. Well, they certainly loved a good quip. Yeah. <laughs> even if it hurt people's feelings. Well, yeah, t- I, I don't know. Tell me about uh, about All About Eve. I mean, I, I've been watching Warner Brothers' Betty Davis movies, and to me it's almost it's almost like a deconstruction of her character, you know, the monsters she played in things like The Little Foxes or The Letter, you know, Margot... Margot is that sort of taken apart and and thought about as as a as a real person. Well, what's so interesting is it was supposed to be Claudette Colbert before she hurt her back, and it's and Joe always said she would have done fine. It just would have been different, but it seems so so Betty Davis that it is hard to imagine anyone but Betty Davis. And yes, it did turn into her life because she married Gary Merrill and. As she says in the movie, you know, you're, you're, he's marrying Margot, and you know, there's not really Margot. I'm, I'm me underneath, and that happened in their marriage. So, life kind of imitated art. Yeah. And Joe also thought that Ann Baxter did such a good job as Eve that Betty Davis was going to be upset that, she, you know, that it was her movie, that it was Eve's movie. But he, as he saw, as he was putting it together, he saw that yes, it was Betty Davis's movie. It's interesting too. I mean, one thing that I think is a, is a jump from Letter to Three Wives to All About Eve is just the caliber of the actors in it. I mean, everybody is so well cast in it. Um, versus Letter to Three Wives, I mean, it's 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 a really good movie, but is Gene Crane you know, <laughs> a major actress? Well, yes. No, he did not want. In fact, Daryl Zanuck wanted Gene Crane for Eve, and Joe really resisted because he thought she was too bland and he, she could do the nice parts but not the fiery parts but i would say in letter to three wives the men character the male characters were stronger and yes. had better lines and more interesting parts and and joe was usually interested in the women more but in that movie it's the 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 gene crane that marriage was less interesting than the other two but paul douglas and kirk douglas both had good lines and good interesting characters whereas the the two people, the two men in All About Eve were certainly less interesting than the three women. Well, Addison, the third man, very interesting, but 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 the director and the and the writer, less so. I just had to look up who the third husband was in Letter to Three Wives, so that tells you something right there. Yes, um, yes. I don't have to look up anybody in All About Eve. And Celeste Holm, I mean, that character really interested Joe and from our perspective it's very interesting because it was the wife too it was the civilian in the theater world and and he portrayed her vulnerability and was very proud of that even though that's the the role he thrust his own wife into you know her position was very precarious and so that that was interesting and Celeste Holm was was very uh, versatile she did a great job I thought it was interesting, you know, continuing through his 50s career, 
um, that he sought out the chance to work with Marlon Brando twice because mm-hmm. you don't think of him doing the kind of movies that Brando had just come to prominence for. Um, you know, this is mixed up, but you know, if you think of the Brando of, uh, um, you know, streetcar, I could have been a contender yeah, on right. the waterfront yeah. and all that stuff. It's yeah. nothing like playing in Shakespeare and it's nothing like being in a Broadway musical guys and dolls. And uh, he wanted Brando for both of those. Do you, why? Well, first of all, he was the it guy. I mean, he, he was the number one, I'm pretty sure, popular and and well-regarded actor at that point. And, but when he cast him, I guess he, he did believe he was a good actor. And the press made fun of his choices. And they said he was going to mumble his way through Julius Caesar as Mark Antony. And he, he, Joe worked with him a lot. And then in the um, Guys and Dolls, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was Samuel Goldwyn's idea. He had some very strange ideas, like um, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis (laughs) casting, (laughs) which Joe obviously was not going to go along with. But um, they did not plan to have Marlon Brando and Gene Simmons sing their own songs. They were going to dub them. But when they when uh, Samuel Goldwyn heard them, he thought they were close enough that it would it would be more authentic to use them. Yeah, it would have been so strange to hear another voice come out of Brando. Well, I assume they had good enough, you know, Marnie Nixon Nixon for Gene <laughs> yeah. Simmons. I don't know. I guess they could imitate voices. But it was. I mean, it's really weird because Frank Sinatra was there, not in the singing role. Yeah. But, and resenting it terribly, he wanted Brando's part. Yeah, and then well, when he didn't get it, he forced himself, or he talked himself into the other Nathan Detroit role. Yeah, well, and it's interesting that you know it's one of those things where acting styles famously clash so hard that you know Brando wanted forty takes to work up uh-huh. to his character, and Sinatra had one good take in him, and by the second one, he was already getting bored. So you had to. I, I, you know, Mankiewicz's solution was to have Brando work with Sinatra stand-in, and then when he's right ready to go, bring Sinatra in. Mm. Like a racehorse. Yeah, (laughs) kind of, yeah. And during the time when he did his songs, he didn't want to do them in character as the, you know, sort of hardened gambler. He wanted to do the another romantic lead, which Marlon Brando resented because he wanted to be the romantic lead. Joe was upset and um, the composer was upset, but Joe, even Joe balked at telling Frank Sinatra how to sing his song. So he <laughs> sang them romantically rather than as Nathan Detroit. He, they weren't particularly in character, although they're fun to listen to. Sinatra turns up uh, on the fringes of another film that he makes around that time, The Barefoot Contessa, because it was made while he was breaking up with Ava Gardner. And I thought it was really interesting. I mean, Joe wanted Ava Gardner so bad, and MGM so didn't want to give her to him. Yeah. Uh, the the negotiations, all that. I, w- I would be exhausted to direct the movie after having gone through what, what they went through to, to get Ava Gardner into this picture. But again, I kind of feel like he liked he liked that fight. He liked, you know the chaos that only he could solve. Well, it's interesting because he was overseas and it was his agent who was doing all this negotiating and sending him a blow by blow. And I originally wanted to do the chapter as the letters between 
Joe and the agent is showing both the negotiations and the there was a lot of bad feeling at MGM. They were angry at Joe over Julius Caesar. So not only did they not want to loan out Ava Gardner, who was so valuable at that point, they especially didn't want to loan her to Joe. And so they extracted really killing um, conditions. But it was also interesting in his agent's letters to Joe, the, like the care and feeding of a talent, but a prima donna kind of talent. So it was. I wanted to call it "Dear Joe, Dear Birdie" because yeah. the back and forth <laughs> was great fun. But it was, you know, it was too much of an in joke with me. You know, it was yeah. more interesting to me than I thought readers would would find interesting. So then we move on to them making the movie and so forth. And then Ava Gardner was a, a huge disappointment to him. Yeah, the they movie. just didn't get on in the way that he had no. gotten on with other female stars. Right, right. And she was, Humphrey Bogart was sort of sabotaging her. He didn't think she was a good enough actress either. So it was, you know, it was kind of a disappointment. I don't know whether it would have been, I guess it would have been better with a, with a better actress, but maybe it was the script too. There was a whole lot of talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barefoot Contessa worked better as a catering company later in a TV show. But, right. Uh, um, the better. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that, though. I mean, you know, they don't want to give Joe Mankiewicz Ava Gardner. And it's like, what's the great Ava Gardner movie? What is she famous for exactly? She's famous for Frank Sinatra and Howard Hughes as much as anything. There isn't a quintessential Ava Gardner film, and Barefoot Contessa mm-hmm. probably comes as close as anything. Um, which to me just shows that MGM often didn't know what it had in front of them and what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I guess she came off the screen very hot, very sexy, very beautiful. But yeah, it, it, it's not my favorite of his movies. A few more movies to the period, kind of a botch of Quiet American. Tennessee mm-hmm. Williams said he was going to throw up after uh, suddenly last right. summer. <laughs> so, although that that would be ranked as one of his better movies, certainly. Uh, and then, did you like it? I thought. I mean, I saw it on a giant screen suddenly last summer, and there are these giant man-eating plants in the in the garden, <laughs> and it's really fun and scary and campy. Yeah, I loved it. You know, I'm I'm all for the over-emotionalization and the over-dramatization of emotions in 50s movies, so I have no problem Uh with that at all. Um, Then, somehow, he walks right into the trap that is Cleopatra. I mean, if you just, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what could be more designed to just not only destroy a career, but destroy a filmmaker than, you know, this insanely over-budgeted, moved a couple of times around the world, constantly replacing cast members till it winds up with, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. You know, it's just this this mess. I always remember what uh, Terry Gilliam said about the crew when he made... Uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen in, in Italy that, you know, crew members were saying, every generation we get one of these. Your grandfather had, you know, the silent Ben-Hur. Yeah, mm-hmm. your father had uh, <laughs> Cleopatra, and I have the adventures of Baron Munchausen. So just one of those epic, <laughs> you know, runaway productions. Right, right. Everything went wrong. Everything that could go wrong with Elizabeth Taylor's health, with weather, with with so many things. And I mean, at some point, someone said, "Yeah, didn't Joe ruin 20th Century Fox with Cleopatra?" And I said, "No, 20th Century Fox ruined Joe with Cleopatra." I mean, it was sort of thrust 
upon him all the things that went wrong. The, the major thing wrong was filming without a script. It always comes back to that. The wasteful sets that were designed that weren't used, the trying to to film as he as he wrote at night and directed during the day and took all kinds of meds to stay awake and then to go to sleep. And so it ruined his health and it was just terribly wasteful. So yes, it was a disaster. And it and it devastated his confidence because he was a very proud man and he was publicly humiliated and blamed for what really wasn't his fault. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of kind of highly successful directors of the the studio period who kind of, you know, washed up on the shoals during the 60s one way or another. And I feel like Joe got there first with Cleopatra. I think it was fear, too, because Billy Wilder was sort of a contemporary, and he wasn't afraid to fail. And as time went on... Um, Certainly Joe's son, Tom, felt that was what it was, that he, he um, became more and more fearful of failure after that. He was broken. by I, It was sort of B.C. and A.C. with Cleopatra for Joe. Now, he did really have a comeback with Sleuth, and he chose to go out on a high note, which is, is yeah. rare. Uh, when I first moved to Chicago, the School of the Art Institute had a, had a series on director's last films. And the oh, over- that's interesting. And the yeah. overwhelming lesson was that their last good movie was about two back from the very end. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. It's Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Not Seven Women for Ford or something like that. Uh-huh. And uh, he managed with Sleuth to recognize that, you know, getting both of his cast members nominated for an Oscar uh, and being generally successful, having, you know, directed two top names, in a you know in a smart script, um, that was a good way to go out, and he did. But he didn't think he was going to. I mean, he was. It was 1972. Sleuth was 72. He was 63. He still expect, even though he was tired of the movie business, and his diaries always say, you know, I'm tired of this. I don't think I have it in me. And he still wanted to write for theater. That was a continuing theme in both their lives. Um, but at the time, he didn't. No, that was the end. It's just projects kept coming to him. And he did work on a screenplay for Jane. It was a novel by D. Wells that was very popular. And it had uh, a young woman who got pregnant and there were three men. So again, Joe always had right. three of everything. But then he lost it. And when his son later came back and said, I got the rights to it, you can write it and direct it and you have complete control. He said no. And that's when the son said, you know, now he's looking back. This was maybe five years later. I don't know, maybe more later. But he just lost it and lost his way, and it was very sad. So then he became more fearful, and yes, at the time, I don't think he thought he was ending. And he lived another 20 years, but that was it. Yeah. As his daughter said, he had a lot of interests but no hobbies. (laughs) It was a bad... 20 years. Well, and we didn't even really talk about Herman's and Herman came to the end of most people who drink too much uh, back in what, the early 50s? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So many of the Algonquins uh, group died young. Uh, you know, they were such big drinkers. And then there's the next generation. I mean, you only touch on this a little bit, but uh, let's talk about what all these Mankiewicz kids have gone on to besides hosting Turner Classic Movies. Right, right. They really created a dynasty of of achievers. They're witty. They're smart. Um, Herman had three children. 
Um, Don Mankiewicz was a very successful novelist, critic, screenwriter. He wrote for television. He did um, a lot of TV writing, and he was successful at it. And Frank never really wrote in that way. He became a political pundit. He was George McGovern's campaign manager and um, Robert Kennedy's um, public uh, affairs person, and he announced Kennedy's death to the world. And his two sons are Josh and Ben, and Josh is on Dateline. They're journalists, basically. Right. And you can, and Ben is politically interested, too, in addition to his uh, TCM work. So there's that, that, through Herman, there's still this political interest. Don's um, son, John Mankiewicz, is a cre- very creative screenwriter and producer, too, who's done a lot of work. And then his um, Herman's third child, who was a daughter, Johanna, Josie Davis, had two sons. She died tragically young, uh, a taxi hitter. But Tim Davis has been a screenwriter, and Nick Davis is a documentary writer. So they've, they're creative, too. And then on Joe's side... Eric, the son whom he did not raise, became a banker. But late in life, he started writing, too, just for his own pleasure. And Chris and his two sons, Joe's two sons with Rosa, Chris, I don't think he wrote anything, but he was involved in the movie business. He's very knowledgeable about about music. And Tom was very successful. Tom did some James Bond movies. He was very witty. He eventually, he I, I watched Dragnet the other night that he directed with, who all right. was in that, Tom Hanks. And, and, and um, yes, hilarious. And he, he just loved doing, he loved directing it. And he said, he said to them, we're having too much fun for this to be work. <laughs> and then with his third wife, Joe, had Alex, his only daughter, and she is a she's an artist and a graphic artist, and she does these fabulous pieces for. She lives in Australia, and she's very very creative. So yes, they have this creative legacy. How do you feel about the two Mankiewicz brothers after having gone through their lives? What what verdict do you pronounce on them uh, as subjects? Well, oh, I loved them as subjects. It's it's hard, you know. It's sort of it's nice to talk about them because I'm not writing about them anymore. Right. But my original working title for the book was "When Life Louses Up the Script," <laughs> because. That was one of Joe's favorite expressions. You know, you can make all kinds of plans, but it's not going to go that way. And um, the publisher felt that was a little too amorphous. <laughs> but it's it was they're just it was very touching. And I had never written about dead subjects, so there, it's something very interesting about knowing the whole arc of someone's life. For example, the high point of Joe's career was all about Eve. He was 41. He lived to be almost 83. So it was the midpoint of everything. And you know that looking back, but I didn't, you know, he didn't know it living through it, that this was the peak. And he was going to go on to other achievements, but that was going to be it. And with Herman, it was, you know, you don't want to say a wasted life, but it certainly missed opportunities because he had a lot of um, talent and a lot of knowledge and a lot of brilliance, but it, it didn't get realized as it should have. So sadness in that way.
The link for the Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Jessica Wall and Sydney Ladenson Stern. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. Everybody has a podcast app, except some people. <laughs> <laughs>